The Trilogy of Victory. When you study the Bible, it's like a light that just continues to get brighter. In light of this weekend and what the world is celebrating, having looked at the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus from so many different angles, I asked the Lord for a broader and deeper understanding of what happened, what the passion of Christ is all about, what actually happened there. And God took me on a journey that revealed to me that it's not so much just what happened to Jesus, but how the things that Christ experienced in his passion are indelibly connected to the things we experience in our passion for Jesus. And so today we're going to walk through the imperative trilogy of victory. Each of these three areas must be present in our lives as they were present in the life of Jesus. You know, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but Christ wants to celebrate his resurrection in us. So bow your heads with me this morning. Loving Lord, speak to our hearts. We pray that as the world is saying, Christ the Lord is risen today. It is our prayer that we can pray that Christ is risen in us. As he has come to change and save the world, we pray that we can experience the saving grace of Christ in us. Take this message now, Lord, and find the fertile soil and plant the seeds there that they may experience the trilogy of victory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning the scripture reading is taken from Galatians, chapter 2 and verse 20. And I'd like to have you read it with me. Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. It appears on the screen. If we read that together, then all of us could be in the same translation. Let us read. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This morning I invite you to come with me to the greatest victory in the life of Jesus. A victory so complete that it became Satan's determined purpose to prevent it. A victory so profound that nothing caused Satan greater concern than the mission of Jesus. You see, when the proclamation went forth, the words of Matthew one twenty one awakened the forces of darkness 
when this declaration was proclaimed at the time of the birth of Jesus. We find these powerful words in Matthew 1 and verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name together, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As I was studying, I discovered that this declaration brought such terror to the kingdom of darkness that an assassination plot was put into effect. Satan determined that Jesus must die. And through the disguise of false worship, Satan spoke through the lips of the Roman governor, Herod, to try to kill Jesus before Jesus killed him. Matthew 2 and verse 7 unfolds this assassination plot under the guise of false worship. We read in Matthew 2 verse 7, Then Herod, this is the conversation with the wise men, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. This is the epitome of false worship. Because when you follow the theme of Scripture, you find that from beginning to end, it is all about worship. In Revelation, the call is worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. You find Herod used worship to try to manipulate the minds of the wise men to disclose the location of Jesus so that he will come and carry out the plot that Satan had planted in his mind. When I study this whole idea that he says, show me where he is, find out where Jesus is located, show me his location so that I can come and worship him, I want to say to you today, even though Herod was the mouthpiece, this idea was not something that came solely from his thoughts. That's why before I reveal to you where it came from, this is the reason, let me say it very carefully, this is the reason why false worship is demonic. Because the purpose behind false worship is to destroy the mission of Christ. He said, show me where he is that I may worship him. When in fact, the purpose of that that request, that commission was, if you show me where he is, through the pretense of worship, I will bring the mission of Jesus to its end. And today, let me make it very clear. People think that it doesn't matter how you worship, but the purpose behind false worship is to block the salvation of humanity. Because Herod said, if you find out where he is, I'll come and worship him. But really, the whole purpose behind my plot is to take his life so that nobody else can worship him. And you may wonder how I can draw that conclusion. The answer is simple. Herod had been successful. If Herod had been successful in killing the young child, there would be no possibility of us being saved. And he used the phrase, Find out where he is that I may worship him. He used that as a side excuse to plot the death of Jesus, but that was not a thought that was born in his mind. Revelation takes us to the inception of that assassination plot. 
in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. As we read this, keep this in mind. From the Garden of Eden, Satan had been scheming and waiting for his opportunity to meet Jesus again. He lost the battle in heaven. Can you say amen? But Jesus made a promise, though 4,000 years delayed, Satan had been scheming and planning. If you look at the journey of the Israelites, you find that every time a woman bore a child, Satan, not knowing how God was working, had thought that Jesus could possibly be that child, that deliverer. That's why. The male child was so admired. Because maybe he could be the Messiah. Maybe he could be the deliverer. Maybe he could be the one that I've been waiting for, for my second opportunity at winning my battle against him. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 to 4, unfolds to us this satanic scheme. And we read in the words of prophecy, Now a great sign appeared where? In heaven. A woman clothed with the sun a picture of the church, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland or crown of 12 stars. Then being with child, understand this is not only synonymous to the birth of the church, but the birth of Jesus. She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and Satan was listening to that cry of Mary as Jesus was about to be delivered. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. A throwback to a number of definitions. One, not only to the the appearing of Satan, this false false angel, this angel that had, had fallen from his grace, but also the system that he represented, the power of Rome. For you see, Herod existed under the kingdom that Satan put in place to carry out his assassination plot against Christ. A dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. The Bible says, And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. You see, Herod, all Jerusalem was astir when the shepherds brought the news that the angel said, for there is born to you today in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the, and the shepherds rejoiced that this birth, this good news was being proclaimed to humanity. But the shepherds and the wise men their events were separated by at least a year or two because Jesus was born as a babe in a manger. But when Herod gave the decree, he said, go search for the young child. And the word child in the Hebrew is not used until the babe has become one or two years of age. So we knew that the birth of Jesus was in a stable in a manger. But when the wise men found Jesus, they found him in a house with his mother, Mary. The events did not happen at the same time. But Herod said, find the young child that I may worship him. But I'm so glad today that he did not succeed. What do you say? Because had he succeeded, we would have all been lost because there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And Satan knew that. 
He understood that. He kept that in his mind. He chewed on that, he chewed on that snuff for, for millennium waiting for Jesus to come and take a second shot. But even as a helpless babe, Jesus had the secret service protection of heavenly angels. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encampeth around about those that fear him and deliver him. You couldn't see them, but they were there guarding the Christ child. They were there. They were there. But I was saddened by the idea that Herod wanted to use worship as a false pretense to take the life of Jesus. And the Lord had me lean back as I was putting my sermon together. And he said, now think about that for a moment. Because the very thing that Herod requested is exactly what is happening in the Christian world today. Many people are seeking God, but they are refusing to worship him the way that he desires to be worshipped. Millions today are seduced in believing that how they worship is irrelevant. I've been looking at posters. I've seen them on Facebook, and I get them in my email, even from people of my own denomination. And I'm getting pained as I see this word continue to rise from one advertisement to the other. The experience of worship. Come experience worship. And I ask myself, how can you experience worship if truth is not involved? It becomes nothing more than a feeling, an inoculation, a temporary high. You feel good, but nothing is involved because really worship without truth is a plot to kill Jesus. But when you read the Bible, you find that Jesus is multidimensional. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. And following Jesus comes with non-negotiable requirements. You can't decide how you want to follow Jesus. You follow Jesus as he is. You follow Jesus as the Messiah, the divine one, Yeshua, Jehovah, the all-powerful creator of the world. We cannot bring God down to our list of requirements We must follow his list of requirements and worship him according to the way he demands. Worship is not optional. Can you say amen? Amen. We find these words in John chapter 4, verse 23. The multidimensional God reveals the platform and the requirements of his worship. John 4, 23. But the hour is coming, he says, and now is. When the what kind of worshiper? True True worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him should worship him in spirit and in truth. It says must. What does it say, friends? Must. Must. A requirement, not an option. The plot to kill Jesus is far deeper than just the debts of the man, Christ. The plot to kill Jesus, and I want you to grab this. I want you to kind of wipe off your spiritual glasses to listen to this. Turn up your spiritual hearing aids. The plot to kill Jesus was far deeper than just the killing of the man, Christ Jesus. Because the multidimensional Jesus is not just 
who he is, but it's also what he is. A lot of us worship the who he is, but don't want to worship the what he is. Follow me. Who is he? Lord, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. You are worthy. You are holy. You are wonderful. You are p-. That's who he is. I've heard people say, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And I say, if you love him, keep his commandments. But I ain't doing that. Because the who of Jesus is preferred above the what of Jesus. But when you worship Jesus, you cannot just worship who he is. You've got to worship what he is. And what is he? Since you asked the question. John 14, verse 6. Here is the what of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I am the way. What else, my friends? The truth and the what? And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if he's the way and the truth, can you abandon the truth and get to the Father? You cannot. Can you abandon the way and get to the Father? Can you turn away from life and get to the Father? No. The multidimensional Jesus, the three facets, I am the way. There is no other way. So when you hear people say that there are many ways to Jesus, there is no other way. He is the only way. Not only that, when you think that truth is irrelevant, he says, I'm not only the way, I am the truth. We cannot embrace error and try to find Jesus. You can't get to the Father through error. You can only get to the Father through truth. And then he says, I am the life. What does he mean by that? There are some people that like the lifestyle of Jesus. The lifestyle that he reveals is different than the life of Jesus. Some people are really good vegans, but they've never given their lives to Jesus. And to be very candid and very humble about it, you can be very good in your dietary practices, but you'll never make it to the kingdom without the life of Jesus. there's There's some great vegan Satan worshipers. Got some of them in Carbondale. Some of them invited me to have lunch with them. The head of the OTO cult invited me to have lunch with him. When he saw my series on unclean spirits, he said, I'd like to have a a conversation with you. He was one of the grand wizards of the OTO, a vowed demon worshiper, invited me to a vegetarian restaurant to have lunch with him. Vegan restaurant. Did I go? As the kids say, nah-uh. Didn't go, didn't respond. So the multidimensional Jesus is the way, the only way. Can you say amen? The truth, not darkness, not error. The only way and the life. You cannot have Jesus and abandon the life that he brings with him. But many accept Jesus for who he is, but they stop short of following him when they are confronted with the what he is. But until we are willing to die, are you ready for this? Until we are willing to die to the what we are, we are not ready nor qualified to embrace the what he is. Now, at this point in the message, I'm going to ask you to put on your swimming suits. But for those of you that can swim naturally, I want you to put on your deep-sea diving gear.
because we're about to go below the surface. And we're about to see and understand the trilogy of victory. The trilogy of victory is a threefold examination of the what about Jesus. It is a threefold examination of the what about Jesus. Because the what of Jesus is missed because we prefer the who of Jesus. We know who died to save us, but the what behind his death is intended to dominate the Christian's life. Now, so far, you're saying, huh? What does he mean with the what of Jesus? What does he mean that the what of Jesus is intended to dominate the Christian? Let's go to Galatians 2 and verse 20 again. Let's look at this passage again because I think you missed the what when we read it the first time. The Apostle Paul, who understands the what of Jesus, included it in this passage. And as you read this, I want you to notice that this passage is not talking about this passage is not talking about a relationship with Jesus. This passage is not talking about being involved with Jesus. This passage is talking about being dominated by Jesus. Not in an abusive way, but in the way that you don't function. He's the one functioning. You no longer are in charge of anything. He's in charge of everything. Look at Galatians 2 verse 20. It starts with these words. I have been what, friends? Crucified with Christ. Last I checked, when people got crucified, they were dead. Works that way, right, Bob? Anybody that got crucified died. So the passage begins by saying, if you want me to live in you, you've got to die. That's why the what of Jesus is so unappealing. The who he is, we can glorify him all day long until he puts the what in front of us. And you find that when he put the what in front of his disciples, 70 of his disciples turned their backs and walked with him no more because they saw the what. When Peter watched the exchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler, he said, Lord, who can be saved? You make it seem so difficult. Because Jesus said, following me requires everything. I told that young man to give up his everything. And if he had given up his everything, I would have given him my everything. I would rather have Jesus' everything over my everything. He said to Peter, I would not have only given him a hundred times more in this life, but I would have given him eternal life in the life to come. Oh, I I tell you, some of us, let me speak to you this morning, some of us are holding on to us because somehow we think that we can do a better job at blessing ourselves than Jesus can. The rich young ruler, he says, give everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And the rich young ruler, blinded by his possessions, by the accoutrements of his joys, by the things that brought him temporary satisfaction, decided this is more valuable than the request you made. But what he didn't see that behind the back of Jesus Christ was a limitless kingdom. That on the menu of Christ, there were more items to choose from than that rich young ruler had even known existed. And he said, I would have given him a hundred times more You know, I suggest to you the reason why, let me say this with humility, 
My wife and I have been blessed beyond what we are worthy. Because the secret of being blessed is giving up you and accepting him. Until you get to the place where you are willing to be crucified with Christ and then say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Until you get to that point, you are only having a relationship with Christ. You're not being dominated by him. He's not the only power operating with you. It's one thing to have Jesus. And I saw the bumper stickers. They said, make Jesus your co-pilot. You seen that? Make Jesus your pilot. If Jesus is your pilot, it's better than the automated driving Tesla car. He'll never have an accident. Come on, say amen. But to be dominated by Christ, as Paul says in the beginning of this passage, it is no longer I who live. To be dominated by Christ, we must be willing to be crucified. So are you ready for the first trilogy of the trilogy? Let me lead into it this way. Until we join Christ in his death, we cannot join Christ in his life. If you're writing it down, the first of the three parts of the trilogy of victory is the co-crucifixion. Now grab that. What did I say it was? It? What did I say it was? The co-crucifixion, that's how Galatians 2.20 begins. I have been crucified, how? With the co-crucifixion. Oh, let me get a little deeper here to you today. Christ cannot live in you until you are no longer living in you. Christ cannot live in you until the you in you is no longer living in you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives where? In me. So until the you in you is no longer living in you, then Christ can't move in. Let me say it another way. Before Christ is seen in you, the you in you, I'm going to get a little harsher now, must be carried out on a gurney. Say it again, Bob. Lifeless. Because as long as there is a smidgen of you left, Christ is not coming in. The secret, my brothers and sisters, the greatest hindrance of Christ being seen in us is the place that Jesus wants to occupy is occupied by you. And until you die, he can't move in. That's why when I talk to people, I could always tell that they're still alive. Because it starts with phrases like, I, I. Can I get two minutes to get on my hobby horse? Hobby horse? I don't want to come to Wednesday night Bible study. Because you are still alive. I've never seen a dead person decide what happens after that. 
No amens required. Christ cannot occupy a space that is still occupied by us. Our desires. Hear me. The co-crucifixion of Christ is a requirement if Christ is ever to live out his life in you. Until everything that you desire that is out of harmony with his will is put to death, then his will cannot be accomplished in you. And Paul made it very clear. When the, when the me in me dies, the Bible says, for it is God who works in you both to what? Will and to do of his good pleasure. Servant of the Lord says that when we surrender our will to Christ, we begin to carry out, we begin to so identify with the will of God that inadvertently, without even our knowledge, we are carrying out the will of God because why? We have died to our desire and it is Christ that is living in us. But during the week, Brethren, you don't know, we are, under, we are under attack. Because everything that surrounds us, everything that comes to us, whether it is through the form of media or whatever it may be, everything that is calling for our attention, everything that is beckoning for our calls, that is calling our names and our desires, our passions, our ideas, our beliefs, our, our, our preferences, everything calling us is saying, my number one aim is to please you. And if you let me please you, then you can't please Christ. But it doesn't say that to us. We are spending our week pleasing ourselves. And when the week is in, one of the reasons why sometimes our spiritual barrels are empty, our spiritual cups are drained dry, is because Christ has not been allowed to live in us during that week. Jesus cannot live in people that insist on living in themselves. But that's a hard lesson to learn. Because in order for that to happen, you have to be willing to die. And the cross was an irreversible experience. <laughs> Is that an understatement? When you died, there was no, I'd like to do that all over. The cross was an irreversible experience. But I'm going to reveal to you in the next two parts of the Trilogy of Victory, you're going to see why the irreversible process of the cross is not a bad thing. Because when you decide to die to you, you are moving in a better direction than you can ever carry yourself. Let's follow that. Why did Paul decide he needed to die? Jesus cannot live in people that insist on living in themselves. Here's the reason why. Look at Paul's writings in Romans chapter 7. Here's the reason why Paul knew that he had to die. He said in Romans 7 verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, say it together with me, how much? Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find 
Some of you try to study your Bibles without dying to self. Some of you try to live the Christian life without dying to self. It is hard to juggle the world and Jesus. What Jesus is saying is put down the world and let me be the consuming, all-encompassing resident in your mind and in your life. You know, you'll discover that there's no greater joy, there's no greater reality, there's no greater power, there's no greater satisfaction, there is no greater contentment than knowing that your life is a part of a divine plan and God is working out everything in your life. That's why this week, when the Lord intervened and said to me, pull over, pull over at scooters and get you a hot chocolate, pull over there and get something to drink, only to realize that this was something I would never do. It reminded me when I, walked, when I drove up to the window and my brakes gave way, it reminded me that, praise God, my mind was still receptive to the prompting of the Spirit of God. Because I tell you, if I had not pulled over, I'd have been on 57 going north at high rates of speed, only to realize that I had no brakes. But God said, let me bring it to your attention before you get on the highway. And God detoured, let me tell you, my brothers and sisters, when there's a detour in your life that seems to be out of the ordinary, it is a prompting of the Spirit of God that will reveal to you in just a matter of time that that detour was for your good. Jesus made it abundantly clear. There's nothing good about us. But the Christian that, that seeks the substitutes, the false worship, the experiences, the things that make us feel good about ourselves, this whole ideology of self-esteem worship. I was listening to a... a, a oh, I, I don't even want to say it this way. You're an Adventist pastor. I, I don't even want to say it that way, but I had to say it to get the point across. And he was saying... Um, you ought to appreciate the God in you. Look for the God in you. And my wife and I kept looking at us, and I said, I've never found a God in me. I want God to be in me. But until I'm out of the way, until God puts me out of the way, that's why there's struggles. If you notice the struggles you have in your life to give your life to Christ, it's not that the way of God is difficult. It's that you are still alive. In the co-crucifixion, it is no longer I who live. I have been crucified with Christ. The co-crucifixion is not for the purpose of ending your life, hear me carefully, but it is for the purpose of getting your life started. How do I know that? Look at John 15, 5. Christians can't live the Christian life. Without Christ. Jesus said in John 15. I am the vine. And what are you? You are the branches. He who abides in me. And I in him. Bears what? Much fruit. For without me. How much can we do? You can do nothing. You see. The Christian life. Cannot be lived by the Christian. If it could be. Then Christ was unnecessary. That's why I've been changing my approach altogether over the last 10 or so years about rushing people into baptism. Because God has to bring them to their own cross before he could bring them to their crown. Now, I don't want to preempt my story and take you there too quickly. 
But the first part of the trilogy of victory is when we decide that the decision Jesus made has to be made by us. Now, I'm going to say a few things that may sound unusual to you. But it also sounded unusual to the Jewish leaders. You see, the mystery that the Jewish leaders could not comprehend was they decided to crucify Christ because they did not want to crucify self. So because they didn't want to crucify self, the Apostle Paul said it carefully, it was necessary that the gospel be given to you first, but seeing that you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. So, so the Gentiles are grafted in, and because the Jews did not want to allow Christ in them, the Gentiles said, we'll be glad to let you come in us. Amen. And notice the difference between the Jewish leaders rejecting Christ's abiding in them and the Gentiles saying, we'll be glad to have you abide in us. Notice what the Bible says about this grand mystery. Colossians 1 and verse 27. Look at it. Speaking about the Gentiles. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the who? The Gentiles. Which is what? Which is what? Which is what? Christ in you. Say that with me. Which is what? Christ in you. In you, the hope of glory. Until Christ is in us, the glory of God will never be seen through us. It's a difference altogether. We didn't say the, we didn't say the doctrines wouldn't be understood. You can understand doctrines like the Jewish leaders did, but the glory of God was never revealed through them because they didn't want to crucify themselves. So therefore they chose, let's crucify him. We don't want to die. False worship, once again, The purpose of false worship is to take the life of Jesus. True worship is to live the life of Jesus. Or let me go even farther, to allow Jesus to live his life in us. Until Christ is in us, the glory of God will never be seen through us. But let me go a step further. I'm going to kind of upset you briefly. And let you hang out there for a second or so. Christ did not die to save us. Hold on to that, Bob. Christ didn't die to save us. If that were so, he would be saving just sinners. Why did Christ die? Are you ready, Ramona? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Hmm. This is going to get a little deep now. Christ didn't die just to save us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Speaking about the contract between father and son. He made him, the father, made the son, who knew no sin to be what? Sin for us. That we might, what? Become 
the righteousness of God in him. Why did Jesus die? We think he died to save us. Here's why he died. You read that text? He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. The what of Jesus. But to go even further, according to what the Apostle Paul said, Jesus came to kill the sin in us that we can become the righteousness that is in him. That is why Satan attempted to kill Christ before the cross. You see, the purpose of Jesus' mission was deeper than just saving us. He came to fulfill a promise. He came to fulfill a promise. Now, I'm going to take you slowly because right now you're still trying to figure out what did he mean by Christ didn't die to save us? Follow me, follow me, and you'll see exactly. Are you ready for the journey? Here we go. Let's go to Genesis 3 and verse 15. It may have been a 4,000-year-old promise, but Satan never forgot it. The mission of Jesus was deeper than just saving us. He came to fulfill his promise. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This is what he said to the devil. 4,000 years before they met again, post-baptism. And just for those of you that didn't grab that, your greatest challenge will be after baptism. Just remember that. He said to the devil, on the heels of the eviction of Adam and Eve, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, now, now follow what's being said. Salvation is not just the result of paying the wages of sin. The crucifixion of Jesus resulted in our salvation because of what he accomplished. Just so you didn't hear that, I want you to think about it. Doesn't have to say amen. I want you to hear this. The crucifixion of Jesus resulted in our salvation because of what it accomplished. Let me give you a story and then I'll illustrate it. What if you found out, and I want to get into your soul today, What if you found out that there was a a ring in Thompsonville that was kidnapping children? And you knew the only way to stop that ring is to get rid of its ring leader and get rid of everybody involved in taking children, kidnapping children. As long as that ring existed, children would be in danger. Are you following? So, if you only rescued the children and left the ring intact, what are the children in danger of? Still being kidnapped. Same thing. I got to stop and pause for a moment because I'm about to explode. Hold on. So Jesus said, I'm not just coming to save my children. I'm going to get rid of the whole ring that held them in bondage. 
So by getting rid of the ring leader and his minions that hold us in bondage, the natural result is the threat to being kidnapped no longer exists. It's coming. I I see you still thinking. So instead of saying, I'm going to go rescue my children, Jesus says, I'm going to get rid of the ringleader so that my children are no longer living in fear of being in bondage anymore. So watch this. So the devil, knowing that Jesus threatened him, when I see you next time, I'm stepping on your head. You might bruise my ankle, but I'm going to get the best of this. And the devil remembered that. He chewed on that for 4,000 years. He said, okay. So he waited for that moment. That's what the garden of temptation was all about. He tried to get Jesus to relinquish his authority into the hand of one who also wanted to hold Jesus in bondage. Because sometimes being held in bondage is worse than death. So he said, I want to hold him in bondage. I need to get him to give up his freedoms, give me complete control of his life. Therefore, if I can control the life of Jesus, he will never be able to set his children free. Now run with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And I'll say the statement again. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. The crucifixion of Jesus resulted in our salvation because of what he accomplished. Because of what he accomplished. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 14. You see, we focus on the weekend, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We're looking at it from another creative way. We talked about the crucifixion. We're going to move to the second phase in just a moment. But what did Jesus do? Look at verse 14. He says in Hebrews 2, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of what? Flesh and blood. That's who we are. That's what? That's who we are. That's what we are. He he himself likewise shared in the what we are. The what. He shared in the what. The same. That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is who? The devil. Now, when, when he did that, look at the benefit. Look at the benefit. I say it again. Jesus The crucifixion of Jesus resulted in our salvation because of what it accomplished. Look at verse 15. And release those. And do what, friends? Release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So when he he defeated Satan, the good news is anybody who wants to be free can be free. Amen. Let's, let's grab this a little deeper now. See, one of the reasons why I pray for people that are not yet in, in, in Christ, that have not yet found this beautiful message, Satan wants to kill them before they get to their cross. Because he knows what the cross means. He knows the cross means his death. If he can kill the sinner before the sinner can get to the co-crucifixion of Christ, the sinner has no partnership in the The next phase of the trilogy of victory. 
So there are those who are in the world today, walking the streets, doing what they want to do, living how they want to live, saying what they want to say, experiencing what they want to experience. And the reason that our mission is so intensely important is because it is our job to say to them, you don't have to be slaves anymore because the one who has the, one who has the, the power to hold you in bondage, there's somebody greater than he that can set you free from the bondage he wants to keep you under. And his name is Jesus. That's why when you go back to the Exodus, what was the Exodus all about? As long as the people were in bondage, they couldn't worship the Lord. He said, let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go that they may serve me. People that are bound in the prison house of sin and death and suffering and heartache and pain and all the, all the addictions of the world, they cannot serve God because they have not yet experienced the co-crucifixion where they die and Christ is now in charge. But let's keep going. Let's go to Romans 6.6. 6. You see, the bottom line is the co-crucifixion of Christ means that until you decide that the sin in you must die, you'll never be free from the bondage that it brings. That's why Jesus became sin for us. So, this is what, this is what, this is what people have had a hard time. Are you ready for something? This is what people have had a hard time trying to figure out. They say, was he God or was he man? Well, when Jesus died, did God die? You ever heard that, you heard that, that, that quandary? People, when, when, when Jesus died, did God die? Because he was God before he became man, and he was man before he went. So what died on the cross? Are you ready for it, Roger? You know what died on the cross? Sin died. What died on the cross? He became sin for us. He took sin and killed it on the cross. Why did he have to die? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. Jesus took sin to the cross and killed it. Come on, somebody say amen. That's why when we come forth in the perfection of Christ at the first resurrection, Paul just says it like this. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your... You were such a big and bad guy. You thought you had us, but we were just sleeping, waiting for our deliverance from the grave. So death is not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. It's just a rest until Jesus comes. Can the church say amen? It's just a rest until Jesus comes. But Jesus took sin to the cross and sin died. And the Lamb of God was willing to put his lamb-like character, the beauty of his perfection, he was willing to sacrifice all of that so that we could have access to all of that. Romans 6, 6, are you there? Until you, until you decide that sin and you must die, you'll never be free from the bondage that it brings. Why was the devil so upset with why Jesus came? And this is what he knew, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, 
This is what Satan knew. This is why he tried to defeat Christ before he got to the cross. Knowing this, that our old man was what? Crucified with him, that the body of sin might be what? Done away with, that we should no longer be what, my friends? Slaves to sin. What did Jesus kill? He killed that body of sin. That's why sin is not stronger than you. Unless you try to face it on your own. But when Christ is residing in you, sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law. That does not mean the commandments. You are not under the law of sin and death. You are under grace. The grace of God is more powerful than the law of sin and death. Why? Because when Jesus died, he broke the power of sin. He took it to the cross. Here we go. So when we decide to die, we join Jesus on the cross, and the sin that reigned in us, it also dies in us. There's no second way to get rid of sin. You cannot doctrinally get, rid, get sin out of you. You can't learn enough about Ellen White to get sin out of you. You can't eat enough Vegelings to get sin out of you. You can't come to church enough Sabbaths to get sin out of you. And I'll be candid to step on my own toes. You can't come to enough Wednesday night prayer meetings to get sin out of you. So much for that, Pastor Loma Kane. You got to get Jesus on the inside to get sin out of you. And you, can I say amen? Can I say amen? Amen. Yes. The secret of the co-crucifixion is this. It means that you are willing to join Jesus in his death. And until you make the decision about sin as Jesus did, you'll never have the life that followed his crucifixion. Which takes me now, part two, the co-resurrection. You see, the life of Jesus cannot be dissected. Until every phase of your life is parallel to every phase of his life, we cannot reveal the total Jesus. Let's put this in chronological order. What followed the crucifixion? The burial. The grave. This is going to get really deep. That's why Paul says in the second half of Galatians 2.20, the life, this is the co-resurrection, this is the what? The life which I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this is the phase of the Christian experience, Dan, that is least compared to the Christian experience because this is the part we often miss. That's why we've got to really understand what baptism means. Baptism it's huge. But because we see it as just becoming a member, we don't see it as joining Jesus in his resurrected life. 
When we see baptism as just a watery grave where we go down and we get wet and we come on the other side, praise God for the victory in Jesus. Let's say that. But when we understand the deeper meaning of baptism, which the co-resurrection brings out, we miss why the devil was so upset on the heels of Jesus' baptism. Did you hear what I just said? On the heels of Jesus' baptism, the very next phase was, I'm waiting for you in the wilderness. Now why? Let's go to Romans 6, verse 1 to 3. Romans 6, verse 1 to 3. Look at it with me. This is the question that people ask when they are confronted by baptism. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what was the answer? Certainly not. God forbid. How shall we who what, my friends, died to sin live any longer in it? That's huge. That's the Galatians 2.20. How can dead folk keep doing what they used to do? And the answer is, Tracy, they can't. So the question is, if we're still doing what we used to do, we are fighting against the resurrected life. Now, here we go. When you got baptized, is that a symbol of death? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Okay. Is that the only time you're supposed to die? How often should you die? Why should you die daily? Because as long as you're in this life, that old man going to try to come back. Come, Anybody know what I'm talking about? As long as you still have on this mortal flesh, some of you still remember how to cuss. Some of you still remember how to smoke marijuana. Some of y'all still remember how to get your praise on. Some of you still remember how to go out on a, on a dime, spin around and go back into the world and live like, look like, dress like, talk like the world. Because you've got this enemy that's still alive that's going to be killed at the coming of Jesus. That's this mortal flesh. When you got baptized... You put to death the past. But to keep the past down and to keep that old man dead, you've got to die how often? Daily. Daily. Because it's mortal flesh. And you're going to see why. You're going to see why. Because Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into, the, into his death? So grab it. When Satan failed, Lord, help me out. When Satan failed at preventing Jesus from his death and burial, that was plan A. He put plan B into place. Friend, this is deep. When he couldn't stop Jesus from plan A, dying and being buried, he put plan B into place. What was plan B? You want to see it? Go to Matthew 27, verse 64 to 66. Oh, now. When he failed from preventing Jesus from his death, from paying the ransom for our salvation, and going into the tomb, when he couldn't prevent his death and burial, Satan activated plan B. Oh, Alice, this is going to get deep. Hold on to Bob. Look at Matthew 27, 64. Now Jesus is buried, 
in Joseph's tomb where nobody ever laid before. So this is plan B. This is plan B. Therefore, talking about how to keep him, therefore command that the tomb be made, what's the next word? Secure until the third day. Lest his disciples, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way and make it as what? Secure as you know how. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb third time, secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Oh, my Lord. I got to prevent myself from speaking so rapidly. Satan wants to secure, Satan wanted to secure the stone so that he can keep Christ from the resurrected life. You see, when we are baptized, we join Christ in his death and burial. However, the same plan that Satan had for Christ to keep him from the resurrected life is the same plan he has for us. He doesn't mind if you're baptized. He just wants to keep your stone secure. Keep you in the tomb of your old habits. Keep you in the tomb of your self-focused pleasures. The things that you enjoy. He wants to put his demons outside of the tomb that holds you back from spiritual growth and spiritual fortitude and spiritual abundance. He wants to secure your stone so that you cannot come out of your tomb. You see, Satan wants to do the same to us that he wanted to do for Christ. He wants to secure the stone so that he can keep us in our tombs. The forces of darkness wants to keep your stone from being rolled away because he knows that if you can come out of your death, if you, if you, if you can come out of your burial, he knows that on the other side, there's another phase of your life that's going to make it better than the phase before. So he wants to keep you in your tomb. This is where we join Jesus in his co-resurrection. Why am I saying it that way? Because we cannot raise ourselves. We cannot raise ourselves. When we decide to die in Christ, the final phase is not yet complete. Let me say that again. We when we decide to die in Christ, the final phase is not yet complete. Because dying in Christ is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. Dying in Christ is not what he's asking us to do and leave it there. He's saying, I want you to die in me. And then I want you to be raised in me so that you could experience this brand new abundant life. But Satan knows. You see, the same fear that hell had about the resurrection of Jesus 
Oh, I want to get into your brains today. The same fear that Satan had about the resurrection of Jesus is the same fear he has about us. Because he knows that if all we do is die to sin, we have not yet experienced a resurrected life. Satan knows that if he could prevent us from the resurrected life, our death is in vain. Did you grab that? If he was able to keep Jesus in the tomb, his death was of no value. The plan was not complete until Jesus came forth and said, I am the resurrection and the life. And what did Jesus say when he came out? All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. You see, brethren, the power that Jesus experienced and received when he came out is the same power available for us today. But we cannot have that power until we experience the resurrected life. Romans 6, verse 4 and 5. The evidence. The evidence. Satan knows there is no greater evidence to the fact of the living Christ than the life through which the living Christ is seen. The evidence. Romans 6, verse 4 and 5. The evidence. Therefore. Look at the, look at the process. Therefore we were what? Buried with him through baptism. That's the co-crucifixion. Into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the what? Newness of life. And here is the promise that terrifies the forces of darkness. This is what Christ desires for us. You see, when we experience his crucifixion, it is not until we experience his co-resurrection that this becomes true about us. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, what is the very next word? What's the very next word? Let's say that with certainty. What is the next word? Certainly, that's a promise. That's an irreversible, unpreventable promise. If we come forth in the likeness of Christ, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. When we decide to die in Christ... He promises that we could also come forth looking like him. Come on, say amen, somebody. Loving like him, behaving like him. But people deny the existence of Christ. Why? Because they're looking for the evidence of his resurrected life. And where does he want to reveal that? Where does he want to reveal that resurrected life? Right here. But the devil wants to keep you in your tomb So God, I ask you the question today, what is the stone that's keeping you from experiencing the resurrected life of Christ? What is the stone stone you battle with during the week that's keeping you in the tomb of self-aggrandizement, of self-satisfaction? What is the stone that Satan has been successfully keeping in front of you to prevent you from experiencing the resurrected life? You see, the promise is, when you join me in my crucifixion and you stay with me in my grave, I promise you'll come out and you'll be like me on the other side. Satan knows that the likeness of Christ's resurrection was not just his countenance, but in fact, that he gained through the resurrection the very thing that he wants to gift us, which brings me to my last point. I invite the praise team to come, which brings me to my last point. You see, there's the co-crucifixion. There's the co-resurrection. Now, this is powerful. And then there's co-eternal life. Amen. 
Romans 6, verse 22 and 23. This is the co-eternal life. This is the co-eternal life. There's nothing about the life of Christ that can be separated at any level. When we join Christ at every phase, then we live Christ at every phase. This is the co-eternal life. Romans 6, verse 22 and 23. Notice what the Bible says. But now, but now, having been what? Set free from sin. And having become what? Slaves of God. The only one that has the best for us. You have your fruit to holiness. And the end is what? Everlasting. Everlasting life. Here's my point. Until you die, you are in the way. When you're in the tomb... That's only the fulfillment of the first part of the contract. When you come forth, Christ makes available to you and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Until you are resurrected, you will never experience the power of that resurrected life. Can you say amen? And that is why the whole meaning behind this verse is the summary of all three phases of the trilogy of victory. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what, my friends? eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, one version says, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It says, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But the point of the matter is, you can't have it without Christ Jesus, our Lord. When you decide to die and join Christ in his death, he says, you'll be able to join me in my resurrection if you decide you want to come out to the newness of life, if you decide you want to be more abundant on the other side, when we come out into this newness of life, mean people are kind. Alcoholics can now think straight. Sour people learn how to be genuine. The sexually immoral are now living lives of purity. Jealous people are now rejoicing over your success. And those that gossiped about you are using their voices to support you. And Christ is being honored by the way they live. But we don't think it's possible. Why? You see, the trilogy of victory is Jesus sharing with Jesus in every phase of our humanity. So that we can share in every phase of his divinity. Did you grab that? Jesus shared in every phase of our humanity so that we can share in what? Every phase of his divinity. How do I know that? The Bible says, speaking of Christ, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without what, friends? The trilogy of victory is that through Christ we can have victory at every level. But just in case you didn't get it, and everything I said went over your head like a rocket, I hope this phase, I hope this phrase, I hope this quote brings it to your mind. Desire of ages. Co-everything. Nothing by yourself. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as what? He deserves. That's the co-crucifixion. He was condemned for our sins in which he had what? No share. 
that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had what? No share. Co-resurrection. He suffered the death. He suffered the death which was ours that we might receive the life which was his. With his stripes, can we say it all together, we are healed. That's a co-partnership in salvation. He did for us what he should not have so that we can have access to what we are not worthy of. He suffered the death that was ours so that we could have the life which was his. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share that we might be saved by his life in which we had no share. The trilogy of victory is a co-partnership in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that is the reason why I picked the closing song because you'll never have it without Christ. If you want that co-resurrection, that co-crucifixion, that co-eternal life, there's only one way to do it. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself what? For me. Because Christ is living his life where? In us. Do you want that today? Now, let me, make, let me tell you why that's important to me. We can go ahead and say, praise God, he rose and accomplished nothing. But praise God, he rose in me and accomplished everything. Yes, he went to the cross and accomplished nothing. But I'm going to the cross with him and accomplish everything. Yes, he went into the tomb that belongs to me and came out the third day. But I'm going to go into the tomb with him and come out with him on the third day. Yes, he rose never to die again. Oh, this is the most beautiful part. If I join him that, if I join him in that, we will come forth from the grave in the first resurrection to rise and never die again. That's the co-resurrection. That's yet to come. But I got the promise. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I can live today with the promise that the Christ who died for me I could die in him. That the Christ who rose for me, I can rise to the newness of life in him. That the Christ who gave me the gift of eternal life, I can look forward one day to the gift of eternal life. And there's nothing the devil can do to take it away because he has been defeated. The trilogy of victory is mine. It's yours. If you want it, why don't you stand with me and sing this prayer. Sing this prayer. This is not a song. This is a prayer. Live out your life within me. Live out thy life within me. It's a prayer. Oh, Jesus, King of kings, be thou thyself the Here it is. 
resurrection. Let thy Shekinah glory now shine forth from within. And what happens when people see it? All the earth keeps Now, before we, li- before we sing this last part, when you join Jesus in that crucifixion, that resurrection, that burial, that resurrection, and you come forth in that co-eternal life, this is the life, this is the experience of your walk with Christ. Restful, calm, and pliant. From bend and bias, you're free. Awaiting the decision when thou hast need of me. Your life is his. Your life is no longer yours. You see, in order for us to be in that eternal kingdom, our lives can't be ours. It has to be his. But it begins now. It begins down here. So as we end with this, this, this stanza, this is the experience God wants to give to every one of us. Do you want it? Let's sing it. But restful, calm, and pliant From bent and bias free Awaiting the decision When thou hast need of me Live out thy life within me oh Jesus King of Kings be thou the glorious answer to all my questionings our Heavenly Father 
Yesterday, people were saying Good Friday. But they didn't know how good it really was. Because many were not willing to join you in that crucified life. Today, according to Scripture, you rested on the Sabbath. Awaiting the decision of your father when he had need of you. And the angel said, Thy father calleth thee. Today, Lord, you're calling us. You have need of us. And you sent a mighty angel to roll away the stone and to bring you forth glorious, perfect, filled with the power that is unmatched in the universe. But Lord, you want that to be our experience. You want that to be our experience. A power that keeps us free from sin and death. But Lord, remind us that this daily death is necessary. That we can have that daily life in you. And so Lord, our prayer for this, for this weekend where the world is celebrating your resurrection. May it be our desire to celebrate your resurrection in us. And may the world see... That yes, I'm no longer held behind the tomb of my habits. I'm no longer held by the tomb of my likes and dislikes. Because you roll that stone away. And I've come forth in the power and the resurrection of life that is only found in Christ. So send us forth, Lord, as lights amidst a dark world. That the world may look at us and say, truly, there's no way that they could be who they are and what they are without accepting the who Christ is and what he is. Send us forth victoriously that we may be to the world a visible representation of the trilogy of your victory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen.